0: Whoever is thinking about starting a food business, think about the kind of agriculture you're supporting. Think about the kind of people doing that agriculture that you're supporting. Think about keeping single-use plastics to a minimum, the best that you can. Don't try to be perfect. Try to be good.
1: Welcome to Learn with Shopify. I'm Shwank Esther Shan. So, you might be into cooking and baking, and you wonder if this hobby can be turned into a business. It seems a little daunting, but it doesn't have to be. I'm joined by Michael Sacco. He's the founder of Choco Soul, a bean-to-bar chocolate maker and learning community in Toronto, and he's going to share his journey of building up this food business to be seven figures in annual sales. Welcome to the show, Michael.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Schmank.
1: So you love Mexican chocolate. How did you make sure that the Canadian market would be interested in this chocolate?
0: So I was living down in Mexico uh, and um, doing some research. And we had started a a social enterprise chocolate company in Oaxaca. And we were doing sales in the local farmer's market. But I was in love with a girl from Toronto still. And so at a certain point, I crossed the bridge, the intercultural bridge, back to Ontario with a suitcase full of cacao. And it was uh, fall 2005. And I was determined to see if there was an appetite for this kind of hand ground, stone ground chocolate in Toronto. And I started off by just going to the farmer's market, the Dufferin Grove Farmer's Market and the Riverdale Farmer's Market. And I was able to bring the cacao to those markets and really see if there was an appetite, not with a consumer and not with a consumer study, but really like trying to connect to the actual customers. And one of the things that going to the farmer's market taught me was that the most interesting and interested customers, farmers and artisans are meeting and having really interesting dialogues across the table at the farmer's market. And so I quickly saw that people had never really understood the origins of cacao chocolate. And that's how I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. So I went back to Mexico. I drove to the Lacandon jungle with a solar concentrator. I did an installation with the solar concentrator and roasting cacao beans in the jungle. And then I drove back to Oaxaca with six tons of cacao in the back of this big truck from the the um, Montezula's reserve truck, the Conam. And uh, that was the beginning of the big adventure called Chocosol. And uh, that started us off. Um, and then in, in the fall of 2006, we landed on 720 Bathurst and we started our first little chocolate bar cafe and people just fell in love with it. And the thing that they seemed to really fall in love with was the chocolatada, which was mm-hmm. a night of drinking and eating chocolate and dancing and playing music. It was like, it was like a coffee house, but on chocolate.
1: That sounds like a great time. How <laughs> yes. did you um, bring the production to Toronto to make sure the facility is able to produce stone ground chocolate and also find people that could execute roasting and making the chocolate?
0: Yeah, so uh, we did all of that ourselves at first. And there was a chocolate maker in Boston, Taza Chocolate, Alex Whitmore. And he was down in Oaxaca while I was there. And he actually asked me to bring his grinders for him. And so he was having trouble with his chocolate grinder maker in Oaxaca. And so I actually had the opportunity to learn how to weld together, assemble together a authentic Mexican stone grinder. In fact, I built my own first Mexican stone grinder out of recycled parts, welded it together, did everything, which was a big deal for me because I was not a, like a tradesman really. And so we brought that container back, We shipped Alex off his grinders. And from that point forward, we just in a very iterative way kept on scaling it up proportion size by proportion size. And we did all the work ourselves. You know, Matthew McFadden and myself, basically, in the early days were doing everything ourselves to the point where, you know, 20 years later from the original learning journey start, now we have created a pretty interesting eco-chocolate factory at 400 and Finch, as well as having a little eco-chocolate store and learning community hub on St. Clair. And I would say the most important thing to understand when you're scaling organically and when you're scaling in an iterative process where you're kind of learning a little bit as you go, we always joked about building the plane while flying it. It's really important to keep on revisiting what it was that were, you know, you were doing originally. So those first tender fruits that might have been, you know, produced in a in an art, very artisanal way, two years down the road, you have to be willing to prune that branch and and leave that technique and that technology and that product behind in order to keep re-evolving and reiterating and improving the product. So that has been something really important for us as a, as a community-based enterprise, an eco-enterprise, is to really try to keep on re-evolving and reinvesting in making that most ecological, most delicious and nutritious chocolate. And the, the craftsmanship is technique, technology, and really working hard on the supply chain.
1: Excellent. So when you're building out the team and you have this production facility, how did you ensure the teams that you brought in who are actually doing the roasting and the chocolate making is able to execute the same way that was happening down in Oaxaca.
0: Yeah. So in Oaxaca, we were roasting everything with pure sunlight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that was why we were called Chaco Sol. So my master's in environmental studies was on a solar technology. And I developed ovens and you know water boilers. I even had a solar sweat lodge we built. And one of the technologies that we built was a roaster for coffee. And I'd just come back from living in this little Zapotec village in the mountains of Oaxaca, Santa Cruz, Yagavila. And uh, it was 2003, and I'd I'd spent about eight weeks there roasting coffee in the mountains with the Zapotec community using pure sunlight. Very transformative experience for me on so many levels. I mean, I remember uh, planting zap, which is a black bean, with this one elder, and we were using our bare feet, and the black beans were in an armadillo shell. So it was like lots of things happened on that journey. But when I came back from the village in 2003, my mentor Gustavo Estevez, uh neighbor was this Zapotec woman who basically was like the village curandera, the village healer. And she asked me, I said, she said, I hear you have a solar roaster. Would you help roast the cacao for me so I could make my great-grandmother's traditional Christmas chocolate? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Another application for my solar concentrator. And so we went to the market. She taught me how she bought cacao and what different kinds of cacao, the cacao blanco, the cacao lavado, the cacao fermentado, the cacao of different kinds and cinnamon and a little bit of almonds. And then we went back to her little cook shack and she showed me how on the comal, the the grade of the roasting and just roasted it enough to be able to peel it. And so I took that little bit of initiation that she gave me, and I brought it the cacao to the solar roaster, which used a concentrating technology to create a focal point of two thousand degrees, and we roasted our our first cacao beans with pure sunlight, and they came out beautiful. And so we peeled the cacao, and then we and then she initiated me to the grinding process of making that chocolate. So that was how we originally started. Fast forward, you know. 15 years in Toronto, we don't really have the sun here. So uh, just as the pandemic was starting, we were able to get some great financing from the Fair Finance Fund and RBC. And Paul DeCampo, who is one of my most amazing leads in the company, he and I worked together to get a Loring Smart Roaster, which is one of the lowest emission roasters in the world has really great technology. And we were able to adapt this to roasting cacao as well as our coffee and create a whole efficient roasting system that basically allowed us to scale up our production in a very, very systematic way using a a computerized profile. And that's where we are right now. Is that the end of the journey? Absolutely not. I've already thought of a way to electrify a Loring Smart Roaster and to implement some techniques and technologies for roasting that would actually heat a greenhouse during the winter and, and roast the cacao at the same time. But that's that's a project for another era.
1: Sounds like it's a lot of iterating and also perfecting the method. Um, so you mentioned all these beautiful relationships with indigenous communities and also the farmers. Um, how do you ensure the Chocosol operation is paying respect to those indigenous communities and actually appreciating their culture?
0: Yes, that's a really important question for us. And and the answer is, most importantly, it's about relationships and having trying to have relationships that are not just reducible to an economic transaction. A clean economic transaction is an important cornerstone of that relationship. But in a relationship, it's also important to have reciprocity dialogue, encounter. So some of the things that we do in the villages are we've been sponsoring the planting of the jaguar trees for the last 20 years in San Felipe de Leon with Don Maximino Martinez and the community there. We've given workshops on how to make the jaguar chocolate, and now they have a successful craft chocolate of jaguar chocolate in the village. You know, other parts of Oaxaca, because we're really passionate about the regeneration of the forest gardens of Oaxaca, we've been able to work with coffee producers to support the integration of vanilla orchids uh, into the coffee forest gardens, adding different layers to the forest garden. In the Lacandone jungle, we've been able to bring rows of cacao. We've been able to look at, you know, finding different ways of supporting it and having those relationships. And sometimes it's as simple as when you go to visit the communities – we bring the chocolate with us we get there's nothing more i have so many <laughs> nice pictures of little children from the villages with chocolate covered faces like little chocolate monsters covered in chocolate and just sharing back the chocolate just bringing the product that we elaborate back to the villages where do i see this evolving in the future you know in the future i'd love to see us be able to have a forest garden you know eco regeneration research site in Ontario. And I would love to bring the Indigenous youth from the villages to Ontario to come and work with us here on developing those best practices, pairing up with uh, our youth here, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike, and then have our youth go back to the villages at origin and do those kinds of intercultural exchanges and friendship building. Because one of the things that I've seen is rather than like trying to do things just for a cause – I do things because of relationships, because I have a commitment and a relationship to a real person. So that I find makes things more sustainable in the long term when it's not just a cause.
1: And definitely more like multidimensional, not just on the financial and trading side of things. Yes. Um, So, you know, you have the ability to do this production in Toronto. You have a beautiful product. Let's talk about the packaging. How did you go about sourcing the materials and making sure it's also staying true to your values?
0: Yes. Packaging is just such a challenge for an eco-enterprise in general and You know, in the early days, we didn't really do any packaging. But, you know, in order to kind of expand and find a way into the market and do more distribution, we had to find packaging. So we have always been looking for compostable packaging. We have always been looking for best practices packaging, reusable packaging, recyclable packaging. What are some of the dimensions of that? Well, you know, in front of us, we have some packaging that is omnidegradable, and that means it's biodegradable in a landfill. Is that our ideal end goal? No, but that's part of our iteration going towards that. Uh, We also have packaging in front of us that is just very, very, you know, good quality. It's um. It's got FSC certified paper. It's got minimal dyes. It's got, you know, minimal materials in it. So we're finding that we have to keep innovating. Right now, for example, we're developing a refillable system. We're partnering up with some local companies that are doing reusable, but we're also developing a high quality recyclable and reusable Ziploc bag. And on the bag is our cradle to cradle policy, which is like reduce reuse, refill, rethink, recycle, bicycle, right? And this bag costs $1. Return it for refilling and you get the eco warrior bonus of $2 of extra chocolate or coffee in that bag. So we're always trying to find the way in that iterative approach to keep on getting better, one of my one of my mentors the late great food policy guru Wayne Roberts said do not let perfect be the enemy of the very good and i think in the packaging journey that we're all on these days we have to keep on challenging it and getting better and working in an iterative way to see how we can become the change we wish for the world and we have to start doing that in our local food communities
1: sure And a big part of your story is sharing that with the community. So being in those markets and being in the store and talking face to face, but because of COVID, you had to close those stores. So tell us a little bit about moving your operations online.
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's like as a leader of a company in COVID, the only thing I can say that prepared me for it was you just got to meet every person where they are. So that was the first thing. There was no right. There was no wrong. Whatever each person was going to deal with, that was really challenging. Second challenge was, okay, we were doing like 50% plus direct to sale to customer. And we had a very small percentage of sales that were on our Shopify uh, online portal. But because of wonderful people like Matthew McFadden and Rebecca Jacobs, who were part of our team, and were really kind of visionary in understanding the importance of the emerging online sales and how that integrates with so many other social media features. We had developed a really good online store already, but it was like, you know, $5,000 in sales kind of thing. COVID hit. No one had seen anything like it before. And, you know, we had 80% of our staff didn't want to work. They they were terrified in the early days. For but sure. we had 20% that were like, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to, you know, th- people need coffee and chocolate in the pandemic. And, like, we saw coffee and chocolate as – essential food services. And people are like, coffee's not an essential. You know what? We saved a lot of marriages, you know, (laughs) with chocolate and coffee at home. You know, so the couples and families were stuck in their houses in those early days. And so we saw because of our integration and the way we were modularly using the Shopify tool, not only for our POS, but also for our online store, and we were already getting ready to use it for our wholesale portal, we saw suddenly the ability, we pivoted and our customers who were finding us in the, in the local markets and so much more found us online. And we went from $5,000 to $100,000 in online sales almost overnight.
1: And that was monthly sales? Yes. Amazing. And, and
0: that was like, thank God for Shopify. Thank God for online sales. Thank God for a team of people who were really prepared. And, you know, thank God uh, that we had overproduced our chocolate. For this cannabis contract, we were going to do a chocolate edible for that backed out on the very last day that they could, citing the pandemic clause, the force majeure. But all that chocolate that we produced allowed us to keep on producing chocolate. And interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that was a real revolution for us was we are always trying to reduce food packaging. So instead instead of selling that bulk chocolate in markets in three bars at a time for $20 or whatever, we were able to put 10 bars in a bag. In one bag and the customers were getting a better value and we were using less packaging and we sold a lot of one kilogram or 10 bar bags online. And that actually opened our eyes to the importance of offering that chocolate as a food item, not as just a little luxury treat with its individual packaging, but as that food you know, cacao is the food of the gods item and, you know, selling five pound bags of coffee instead of one pound bags and things like that. So, yeah, it really we saw a real change and we saw a really good opportunity in pivoting in that change to get that message out and get those products out to people that kind of supported them through that a little bit of joy, a little bit of pleasure.
1: Yes, really making sure the chocolate and coffee is a pantry staple (laughs) and having more room in the cabinets. So you mentioned about this 5,000 to 100,000 monthly sales online. Did you guys do any additional marketing or paid social to ensure that more people knew about your online store?
0: You know, in the early days, not so much. In the early days, it was very, very, seemed to be like catching fire. We were doing a lot of social media. We saw uh, the newsletter um, grow massively through the people who are getting the orders and signing up for our newsletter. And that's become a really great recurring source of connection. But in the early days, uh, you know, we were struggling with things like the integration between our dear inventory software and our Shopify portal. We really struggled with that in uh, more than anything. So a lot of effort in that first six or eight months, even to this day, to a certain degree, went into trying to figure out the the translation from what was in inventory And what was actually available on the online store. And we're still kind of finding like, you know, what are the best practices for organizing our product flow to keep those things to a minimum? And there's a lot of innovation that still has to happen there.
1: Was there parts of the online store that you felt like you were perfecting over time? And there's sections that you felt like it really worked for the customers buying journey online?
0: I love how the Shopify online store really allows you to tell stories like right on the product page. And and that's part of our journey right now is like, how do we activate those, you know, short little audio video clips for each product so that instead of it just being a product on a screen, it can really speak to the customer. And so I think that that's a very powerful tool to allow us as the guarantors of the quality and integrity of our product to speak more directly to the potential customer. And I think that uh, there's a lot of opportunity right there. And I think that the Shopify platform is really allowing us to be at the cutting edge of that. And it's nice too that, you know, Shopify is evolving to have a wholesale portal and it's evolving, you know, and improving its point of sale. I mean, I, I before the pandemic, the Taking cash or credit card with my Shopify uh, iPad integration was not easy. But, you know, you guys came out very quickly in the pandemic with a tap. And we were one of the first people to to do that. And, and like, we saw the emergence of tap technology evolving. And, wow, it's great now. I like to say, you know, to people, do you want to pay with the newest form of martial art uh, invented during the pandemic? They're like, what's that bad (laughs) joke? I'm like, tapoeira. Because right, you, you get people come, they're doing all this wave, trying to wave it over it. But that was like wonderful to be part of that process. And the first tap readers that we got from you guys were a little buggy, but very quickly we got version 2.0 and it was 10 times better. And then after that, we got version 3.0 and now we never have a problem. So that was wonderful to be part of that process and to give whatever feedback we could, we could and, and see how you guys were constantly iteratively improving as well.
1: Great to hear. And I know that, you know, bicycle and pedal power is not just a part of the chocolate making. It's also a part of the delivery process. So can you tell us a little bit about building out that local logistical system?
0: So in the early days of chocolate making in Oaxaca, we were using bicycle grinders and blenders and solar roasters. We were really, really, you know, we don't use the chocolate, the bicycle grinders as much in the chocolate production anymore, although we are developing a, um, a workshop workout for the kids to kind of learn about the chocolate and the thing. So that's a whole other thing. But we're also like, you know, Matthew McFadden in particular, who is, you know, lead sales of the Choco Solistas lead market warrior has delivered more chocolate by bicycle probably than any other human who has ever lived (laughs) in part because the bicycle is really only a technology that's been around for 200 years, but we've been using electric e-bikes for delivery since 2008 and trailer systems. And combining that with our bicycle technology. And a lot of people will think about bicycle technology as something that is for the last mile, right? It's like, I remember doing a survey for a company that was looking at the role that bicycles could play in the last mile. And I said to them, I think you're asking the wrong question. It's the first and last mile because bicycles are a scale of technology that everybody can afford, As one of my mentors, Ivan Illich, said, when the revolution comes, it's going to come on a bicycle. And so bicycles are for a tool for people with lots of initiative and maybe not lots of capital. And the Chocos Solistas definitely fit into that category. So the, the bicycle was our way that we could use it to gather the materials for production and produce it and then deliver it. So it was the first and last mile. And I see bicycle technology as going through a renaissance. Right now... Uh, we actually have a plan to build a cyber quad donkey. So it's like kind of playing off of the the cyber truck, but it's a four wheel bicycle truck that is simultaneously a giant battery, a solar array, and the ability to deliver a half ton of chocolate anywhere in Toronto, any time of year. And that's a research and development project and sustainability project that we're gonna be working on in 2023. So we are just at the beginning, I think, of the renaissance of pedal power. And I think that there's some really interesting things happening with bicycles and batteries and solar. You know, electric bicycles with batteries that can also use electricity for hot water and running blenders or coffee makers or any number of other application is a really, really interesting area to explore. Almost like a, you know, an eco James Bond you know, Swiss Army knife model. So I think that the bicycle of tomorrow is going to be almost like the smartphone revolution where the bicycle is going to be able to provide a tool, a technique, and a technology to millions of people in a way that is going to be revolutionary.
1: So once you had to pivot online, how did you bring people onto the site and drive traffic?
0: So first thing we did was Facebook posts, you know, Instagram posts, really letting people know, hey, guys, we're still open. We've got these products. Here's how we want to support you. Beyond that, we started connecting with the local farmers markets and the organizations that we had been going to, and they reposted us. And so all of a sudden, by being ready and on top of it, we were able to kind of get that out to those other sites, the St. Lawrence Market, the Evergreen Brickworks, the Witchwood, you know, a whole bunch of different community markets that were simultaneously dealing with the same issue of food insecurity and where people were going to get the good food, right? So we tapped into that, and that was an early-on method that we used in order to let more people know about what we were doing and the products we had than even before the pandemic. So suddenly we were finding and being introduced to people that we had not met before. And we started it very grassroots, Second stage of that was really looking at search engine optimization, uh, spending uh, more money on Google ads and search engine optimization, understanding what kind of search terms that really separated us, you know, from other chocolate makers. So, you know, we wanted to be known as a chocolate that was a vegan chocolate. We wanted to be known as a stone ground chocolate. We wanted to be known as cacao and chocolate foods, not candy. So really also kind of like crystallizing and doubling down on understanding what were the unique product features that we wanted people to find in our product. Really understanding the market, you know, beyond fair trade, or we always talk about horizontal trade, which is kind of that idea of the intercultural encounter and dialogue and relationship and friendship. We, you know, pedal power, maybe not so much, but that was something that some people locally were interested in, getting their chocolate delivered to them by bicycle. So there were a whole bunch of different things. and, And the more we saw the trends and the data online, the more that helped us to kind of refocus our energies and understand how to curate our social media and our search engine optimizations in order to be more targeted in the way that we fished with the net called the internet.
1: Mm -hmm. So it sounds like uh, a network of organic social posts, and then you invested in SEO and Google ads. Um, So what are some tactics that you use today that you invest heavily on that you see the most results?
0: We invest heavily on creating powerful content. So we really believe that content is our biggest strength. There's a lot of companies out there that are just very kind of plastic, very pretty. The thing that we have going for us is we've got a lot of roots. So we identified that as something, that content-driven story, that content-driven product that's something we always try to engage with. That's something that we always try to celebrate. And we really recommend to people to like try to find out where their content is and focus on doing something real and sharing and celebrating that instead of just doing a lot of surface stuff that looks good. Building that customer base online, it's like, you know, we're not looking for a million customers who buy something overnight and then that's it. We're looking for organically growing that and making sure that we can give people that quality product in groups at a time as our capacities increase and looking then at regular postings, keeping it in people's feed. We're we're now one of the areas that we're trying to look at is how do we engage more with our social media uh, followers? How do we get more information to them, more information from them, and how do we do that in a way that doesn't seem robotic, that doesn't seem too much like we just want to sell, 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 right? We are not a hard sell company. And that's part of our values is like we are a company with a quality value proposition and we're we're looking to work with the willing instead of selling or convincing or persuading.
1: Well, it feels like you guys are doing very well, Um Surpassing two million in annual sales and also growing by twenty percent each year. Um, Do you feel like there's any, I guess, words of wisdom for people who are wanting to enter into a food business?
0: Yes, Uh, words of wisdom. So you need, we need as as a species, we need food that is good, clean, and fair. We need food that feeds humanity's hunger for hope and for ecology. So please, whoever is like thinking about starting a food business, think about these questions. Think about the kind of agriculture you're supporting. Think about the kind of agriculture and people doing that agriculture that you're supporting. Think about how the food miles impact that. Think about what kind of recipes you can develop that embody that. Think about keeping preservatives and additives and single-use plastics to a minimum. Don't try to be perfect. Try to be good, right? It's like find those things that are your deal breakers and find those things that are not your deal breakers. And just kind of in an iterative way, find the places where you can go to develop that product. I always recommend farmer's markets and small community markets to new food artisans because you get your feedback from the customer in real time. A lot of people think about starting companies and going big right away and co-packing and stuff like that. And that's a whole other route. I'm speaking more to the people who are putting their heart and soul into their product. And those people, if they go to those farmers markets, it's a marketplace, not a marketplace in an abstract sense. It's a place where that is a market. And those dialogues, those friendships, those surprises... Those learnings, everything is there for you to constantly be be looking at your messaging, looking at your communication. What questions are people consistently asking you? And the more you see the certain questions re-arising over and over again, then design your product packaging and your product messaging to integrate those things into your packaging and design. Does this chocolate have nuts in it? Does this chocolate have dairy in it? Oh, I can't eat chocolate. It's got sugar in it. Or I can't eat chocolate. It's got cane sugar. You learn about all these trends in real time. You see those food trends and then tie those things. Not in, Don't chase the trend. Trend can be your friend, but don't chase it. Instead, really like try to ask yourself the question of like, what means something to you? And for me, what means something to me is in the age of climate catastrophe, It's not enough to be a sustainable business anymore. Now we've got to be regenerative businesses. And that's the mission I'm on for the next 40 years of my life is to continue developing the tools, techniques, and agricultural and technological models to create not just a sustainable but a regenerative supply chain and manufacturing chain that is cradle to cradle. And it is looking at feeding that health and feeding that hunger and hope for a world in which many worlds can belong and fit in a beautiful way.
1: Awesome. Looking forward to seeing how your story unfolds. Thank you so much for being here, Michael.
0: My pleasure. It's it's always great checking in with you. And uh, muchas gracias.